that I've got today. We're continuing in our series that's called Ancient Grace, and this particular message is entitled, My Redeemer Lives, from the book of Job's. The Old Testament is a series of books that run the gamut from history, law, to prophecy, to the wisdom literature. But within the Old Testament, there's one book that, to my thinking, seems to stand by itself, and that's the, the story of Job. It's not truly a history. There's no consensus as to when the story takes place, and it deals with one man rather than a people group or a nation. It's not considered a book of prophecy because Job is not telling forth the word of God to the people. It's included in the wisdom literature, but it's really quite different than Psalms, Proverbs, or other books like that. It's different, and it's special. Job is a book of riches. It's rich in its revelation of God. It's also rich in its literary styling. Even critics of our faith admit that. And it's rich in the scope of the story. If Hollywood made a movie out of this book, they would rightly call it an epic. And this epic starts off with a bang. I will read various texts as we go along, but I'm going to start with the first chapter of the book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put, your, put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now it happened on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I have alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. 
Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Let us pray. Father, once again, we come to your word, seeking to know more of you, to understand you better, so that we might walk in your ways. Teach us this morning from the story of Job. Open our ears to hear, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to love your word. Amen. So looking at the opening book of the opening words of the book of Job, we see right off that Job's no ordinary man. God's word calls him blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Who would not like to have that resume? To be described in God's word with adjectives like that is almost unbelievable. Not only was he a good man, we read how God had blessed him with his family and with riches. By the standards of that day, or any day by that matter, Job was a wealthy man. He had sons, daughters, and livestock, all that a man could ask for. We can also surmise that Job was a good parent because, like any good parent, he worried about his kids. Our text tells us that Job went before the throne of God on a regular basis, doing a priestly duty of intercession on behalf of his children. Our hero was a man of particular piety, one we would all do well to emulate. But then the scene moves from the earthly home of Job to the heavenly realms where we see God holding court. Then, wonder of wonders, we see that even Satan comes into the presence of God. Then God lifts up Job and brags about him to Satan, much like a father bragging about his son. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's blameless. He's upright. God points Job out as an example of God's triumph and Satan's failure. Why would God do such a thing? Why is he even talking to Satan? Not only does he talk to Satan, they carry on a discourse as one might hear between friendly rivals. But whatever the reason, God throws down the gauntlet and he puts Satan on the spot. But Satan's quick off the mark and answers God with a challenge and a question of his own. Does Job fear God for nothing? Has thou not made a hedge about him and all that he has? Satan's question is really a challenge to God. He makes the argument that Job's allegiance to God was bought and paid for. Satan suggests that Job was loyal to God only because of God's blessings to Job. It appears as though Satan was taunting God. He says to God, in effect, you've purchased Job's loyalty with riches and protection. Of, Of course he's a model citizen. Who wouldn't be with that kind of payoff? Satan, it seems, is trying to manipulate God. He actually throws down a gauntlet of his own. He says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to your face. In other words, remove the motivation from Job and Job will be mine in a moment. In essence, Satan is claiming that Job's devotion to God is all false, just a, a payment for services rendered, so to speak. Then an amazing thing happens. It seems that Satan had manipulated God into deserting Job. Say it isn't so. God would certainly not so easily give over his followers to Satan, would he? Well, at first glance, it appears that that's exactly what happened. God said, behold, all that he has is in your power. What is God up to? What's he thinking? 
Job has been abandoned, thrown to the wolves. The devil is in the hunt, and the gate to Job's estate has just been thrown open. God has given Satan the authority over every aspect of Job's wealth and his family. Only his health and his life were held back from the clutches of evil. And Satan wastes not a moment before he goes after Job with guns blazing. And Job's world comes crashing down around him. One moment, he's a wealthy man, a proud father, one who had built up quite a legacy to pass on to his children, who in turn would give him comfort and care in his old age. The next moment, he is penniless and childless. He would leave no legacy, which was just as well, for he had no one to leave it to. His old age would be without relief. His entire life is shattered. He who had it all was left with nothing. Now, we can't help but ask, who's to blame for the attacks of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans? Was God to blame? After all, God removed the hedge from around Job. However, in Romans 8, 28, Scripture tells us that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. So we know that God would use even this calamity to work for Job's good. We'll have to figure that out as we go along. How about Satan? Was the devil to blame for the Sabaeans? Well, he'd obviously be an instrumental in bringing the calamity about. We certainly could blame Satan. Uh, he would fit the role of the villain rather nicely. But if Satan gets all the blame, where does that leave the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans? Does it mean they were blameless? Were they simply pawns on some great cosmic chessboard? Could they stand guiltless on Judgment Day and say, uh, the devil made me do it? Or are they responsible for the crimes they committed? I remember a lesson on Job by R.C. Sproul in his Dust to Glory series. And I believe that Sproul was correct and he made the case that the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans must bear the responsibility for their actions. He makes the case that they always wanted to get against, to, to go after Job, but were prevented by that hedge that God had erected. The Sabaeans and Chaldeans could no more lay the blame on the devil, or on God for that matter, than Adam could, or that we can. All sin must be paid for. The devil will pay for only his own sin. Not the Sabaeans, not mine and not yours. The devil made me do it has never been an excuse for sin, and it never will be. What about the servants and the children of Job? Why did they have to die for, in order for God and Satan to have their fun with Job? Were they the pawns on the chessboard? Well, we'll consider that as we look at the story, and we'll come back to it in a bit. But before we do, let's consider Job's reaction to calamity. The text tells us that Job tore his robe and shaved his head and then fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I return. The Lord gave and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God had called Job blameless and upright. And in this text, God seems vindicated in his pronouncement of Job's character. Job's response to calamity was worship. He recognized that his wealth was God's to do with as God saw fit. Job's response has become a commonplace saying today. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even an unbeliever will repeat the first part of that line when faced with the loss of wealth or some other calamity. But even after this terrible series of tragedies, our text tells us that Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Could we do as well? I would not for a moment believe that I could, especially as my first response. I know that the sin nature within me would take control at least for a bit. 
I doubt that I would have the ability to respond as Job did. But thankfully, God does not often put us to this type of test. But Job was put to the test. And he passes with flying colors. But the test is not over yet. The second chapter of Job starts off just like the first, where we again find Satan and God in conversation. And again, the subject of Job comes up. God reminds Satan of God's previous statement and then goes one better. He taunts Satan with the fact that Job was steadfast in spite of all that Satan had done. So Satan then ups the ante. Reading in the second chapter of Job at verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. It may be a new day, but it's the same old Satan. He never changes his goals. Well, what about Job? Would we see the same Job? He passed the first test, but how would he do in round two? Well, not only does he have another round of attack to withstand, this time his health is affected. He's in misery from boils on every part of his body. He couldn't sit. He couldn't lie down. He couldn't even stand without being racked with pain. It's enough to make any man curse. Even Job's wife, starting in the middle of verse 9, tells him this, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The faith of Job's wife was not as strong as her husband's. She saw his misery and asked him why he is still loyal to a God that had afflicted him so. All over the world today, People in trials will ask the same question, although they typically phrase it, why has God allowed this to happen? If we're truthful with ourselves, we can probably all confess to this utterance at one time or another. But Job, Job knew that his wife's words were foolish. He trusted God even in this strife. Even in his turmoil, he refrained from sin. And I have to admit that on my best day, I probably could not do near so well. Then, three of his friends come to mourn with Job. They sit without speaking for seven days. Finally, Job reaches the end of his rope, and we see him curse. But unlike most lesser men, he doesn't curse God. Instead, he curses his own birth, his very existing existence. Reading at Job's 3, starting at verse 1, we read, afterwards, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived. Skipping down to verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? The third chapter of Job is Job's lament. He wishes he'd never been born. He didn't blame God for his misery, but he did ask why he was brought into the world to face such a trial. He was so miserable that he would have rather not lived at all than to live in such a state. But even in his, his lament, he doesn't blaspheme God. But then his friends start in. And poor friends they proved to be. Instead of comforting Job, they begin to explain to Job that, a, that he must be at fault. 
There must have been something in Job's life that caused God to pour out his wrath on him. The great man had been brought low, and the friends figured he must have deserved it. Weren't Job's friends somewhat like we are sometimes? Do we not assume that the rich and blessed people of the world may not deserve their wealth and good fortune? Do we not assume that they might not have been so fortunate unless something was amiss in their accumulation of wealth? Or how about when the rich and powerful today suddenly have misfortune strike? Doesn't some small part of us take pleasure or, or at least satisfaction in their misery? Do, don't we often say in our hearts, God has given them their comeuppance? Much as we would likely say in our hearts, Job's friend Eliphaz says it out loud. Chapter 4, verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Eliphaz says that the upright don't get treated this way. The innocent don't perish. The upright are not destroyed. No, it's the sinner that plowed iniquity and got what he deserved. It's the sinner who sowed trouble and who reaps trouble. It's the sinner who, in the natural course of events, receives back from God what their deeds deserve. Eliphaz has said to Job, in effect, you're evil in your heart. You have some hidden heinous sins or else God wouldn't have done this to you. Then he rubbed salt in the wound by telling Job that he should have been happy that God was proving him. Sort of like that passage in Hebrews a little earlier. Reading in chapter 5 at verse 17, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. Eliphaz told Job that he shouldn't despise the discipline of God because God obviously did this for Job's good. Well, Eliphaz is at least partly right. One should not despise God's discipline. But his assumption that Job had caused God to act because of some great evil in Job's heart yeah, is incorrect. And Job responds to this tirade by telling his friend to put up or shut up. He asks his friends, identify the sin. Hold me accountable. In chapter 6, at verse 24, says, teach me and I will be silent and show me how I have erred. In effect, he says, okay, if you're right, show me. If I've got such great sin, point it out. Help me. Hold me accountable so that I can repent. Because I don't think that you can find this great evil that you say I possess. He defends himself against the charges laid by Eliphaz because the charges were unjust. Job was right. We have to remember that God himself said that Job was a blameless and upright man. But the friends wouldn't relent. Eliphaz rested, rested while Bildad goes on the attack in chapter 8. Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgressions. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Skipping down to verse 20. Lo, God would not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. So Bildad joins the attack on Job and said that God wouldn't reject Job if Job had integrity. This part of the text, we see another of Job's friends say, in effect, Job, if you're as good as you pretend to be, you would not be in this state. You cannot be righteous and be under wrath. You must be a wicked sinner. And we can prove it by observing the results of sin in your life. 
In response, Job acknowledges at the start of chapter 9 that no man can be completely righteous. The text says that Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Job freely admits that no man can be right with God by his own power. But Job also knew that everyone would be sitting around covered with boils if there was a direct cause-effect relationship between sin and day-to-day suffering. Job admitted that no man could, of his own efforts, be right with God. In other words, Job said, no one can be righteous by works. Not content to let Eliphaz and Bildad do all the heavy lifting, Job's third friend, Zophar, joins in, and he rebukes Job. It's more of the same and provoked additional defense from Job. However, in chapter 13, at verse 15, we see Job once again increase the stakes. We see him tell his friends that he will trust in God even if God takes his life. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. This is one of the key verses in the entire book of Job. In spite of adversity, Job is still a man of faith. He acknowledges God's sovereignty, and he acknowledges that God has the right to do with Job whatever God chooses. This theme of God's sovereignty continues on in chapter 14 at verse 5. Since his, that is a man's, days are determined, the number of his months is with thee, and his limits thou hast set so that he cannot pass. Job understood that God is sovereign. He understood that God is in control of all things, and that even the number of days that a man will live are predetermined. And he did not get that idea from John Calvin. Job trusted that in the end, God in his sovereign mercy would make things right. Oh, that we could all trust God this much. And so the book goes on. Back and forth go the arguments. Job on one side, his friends on the other. I love verse 2 of chapter 16 where he says, Sorry, comforters are you all. This should remind us that accusations of wrongdoing have no part in comforting one who has the trials of life at hand. Job's friends were poor company for Job. And as the book moves on, we see that Job did not need his friend's comforting. Job had a way to find comfort of which they seemed to be unaware. In answering his accusers, chapter 19, verse 25, Job makes his most profound statement yet. As And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. Perhaps that is the most revealing verse in the whole book. We see here where Job has found his comfort and assurance. We see what Job is trusting in. Because Job has expressed faith in his Redeemer. He says, my Redeemer lives. And not only was his Redeemer alive, Job knew that at some future time, this Redeemer would appear on the earth. It says, at last he will take his stand on the earth. This text reveals that Job was not only an upright and blameless man, it appears that he was studious as well. Apparently, he studied the prophecies that told of a coming Redeemer, a Messiah. And he states with conviction that after his dead, that Job in the flesh will see God. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. See, Job believed in the resurrection of the body, and he believed that in his resurrected body that he would see God face to face. Not only 
is Job a man of faith? He knows that there is a redeemer, that that redeemer would come to earth and that even Job's death would not separate him from his redeemer. You would think that Job's witness of his faith would give pause to his friends. They don't even take a breath. The attacks continue. The debate rages. His friends accuse. Job defends in a cycle that seems to have no end. But then we see Job go a bit too far in defending himself. We see Job call on God for an answer to his affliction. Chapter 31, verse 35, Job cried out, let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. But Job steps out of bounds. He calls on God to give him an accounting. Instead of Job, instead of Job holding God accountable, the tables are turned and it's Job who must give an accounting. In chapters 38 to 41, we see God's humbling of Job. And it's part of the process of Job's sanctification. It starts out with a pretty tough challenge in the opening words of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God asked Job some life-defining questions. In fact, God has said, who are you? Who has given you the right to question God? Who has elevated you to my level? When God asks, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God is saying that God has made all there is and that God has the absolute authority over his creation and that Job had, for a moment, forgotten his place in the created order. The created does not put the creator on trial. The created does not have the right to take the creator to task. To do so is to imply that Job has a standing that's in the realm of the divine. God's indictment of Job quickly humbles him. Job realizes that he has committed a sin by failing to trust God, as had been the hallmark of his life up to this point. Instead, Job had let his friends lead him into the sin of failing to trust God. And as God reminds Job of his standing before the throne, a humbled Job recognizes his sin, confesses his sin, and in chapter 42, at verse 5, he repents. We read, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, as soon as we read of Job's repentance, God's inerrant word tells us that God restored Job's fortunes twofold. Verse 10 reads, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. God rewarded Job's faithfulness. And the text says that Job's later years were blessed even more than his early years. Whatever Job lost was restored twofold. Let's confirm this. Looking, by looking at what Job possessed in chapter 1, and what he regained in chapter 42. Just as God's word says in 42.10, there's a doubling. Where he lost 7,000 sheep, God returns 14. Where he lost 3,000 camels, God restores 6,000. Where he lost 500 pairs of oxen, God restored 1,000 pair. Where he lost 500 donkeys, God restored 1,000. Where Job lost seven sons, God restored, uh, oops, only seven. What happens? God's word said doubled. Where are the 14 sons and the six daughters? Why are there only seven and three? This is where we need to step back and look at the eternal picture. 
were Job's first seven sons and three daughters actually lost? Well, yes for the moment, but not in the eternal picture. Job's ten children were not lost forever. They're in heaven waiting for Job to join them. Like David said when his son died in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Job knew that there's another life after death, and he knew that he would still have his sons and daughters in eternity. He hadn't lost them. The ten new children are a doubling. In fact, as we speak, Job is with all 20 of his children. Job's had a thousand years with all, had thousands of years with all his children, contrasting the time that they've had together with the few years that they were apart makes those few years look sort of insignificant. So in summary, we ask, you know, what are the lessons in this book? Why would a good God allow so much suffering to come into Job's life? Well, let's look and see what we've, what we've learned. Well, we, we learned that God allowed Satan to do with Job as he did, and it was primarily for Job's benefit. Job came to a better understanding of God and a better understanding of himself. Secondly, we learned that Job had no standing before God based on Job himself or anything that Job did. We clearly see that Job's standing before God was based on what God did for Job. Job was a man under grace, and it's through God's grace alone that Job finds his standing before God. We see that Job was a man under Old Testament law, but that his salvation is based on faith in God's Redeemer that would come. He must trust this Redeemer, and he did. Job is saved by God's grace through faith in an anointed one, a redeemer, who Job would see in his flesh after his death on this earth. Third, we learned that God did not set up Job. Actually, God set up Satan. God pointed Job out to Satan because he knew what Satan would want to do. God permitted Satan's actions because he knew that Job needed it. Satan meant it for Job's harm. And Satan was having the time of his life tormenting Job, but God knew what would happen. God used it mightily in Job's life for good and for our good as well. It may be that God allows Satan to get to us from time to time for the same reason. Fourth, we learned that Job's reward on earth is a foretaste of his reward in heaven. The lesson of the doubling of his children is a beautiful picture of a coming world where we will be blessed even more than we're ever blessed in this world. Job was a man of faith, a man of faith in God's promise. He's a man under the law, but a man who found no salvation in keeping the law. Job was a man who found salvation by trusting in God's promise, by trusting in the Redeemer that is promised to come. Job found salvation by God's grace through faith in the Redeemer, the Christ who would come. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. The story never changes. All through the Old Testament, we see it. And we too must be like Job. We must not depend on what we do for God. We must trust in the Redeemer because like Job, after our skin is destroyed in this life, in our flesh, we too will see God. Will we be trusting in his anointed Redeemer or will we face judgment on our own merit? Job answered the question rightly. Will you? The book of Job is one of my favorite Old Testament books, and I often use this epic story 
is a lesson in trials and suffering. Just as we have the limited ability to see any possible good coming from our trials, so too, when Job is in the midst of his trials, he would have had a hard time understanding what possible good could come from this massive amount of suffering that he endured. But we should also consider an eternal perspective. Depending on when this story happened, Job and his 20 children have had now enjoyed perhaps three to 4,000 years together in heaven. They've watched this story, this book, bring comfort and understanding to believers from every people, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. What do you think Job would say if we could ask him to comment today? And I plan to ask you this someday. Uh, if we could ask him to comment today on his suffering from so long ago, would he be consumed by the memory of a few days of painful boils, a brief period of poverty and a few years of temporary separation from half his children? Or would Job look at the good that this story has brought for thousands of years to millions of people? I believe that Job praises God every day for the way that God has blessed the nations through this story. You probably will never be asked to bear as much suffering as Job, but we're promised persecution and suffering to some extent when we become followers of Christ. But when we get to heaven, we can listen to Job as he sings praises to God. We will also praise God for our own suffering, whether great or small, for then we will know how God used our suffering either for our good or for the good of others or for both. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word, for all that it has to reveal to us and how we see over and over again in the Old Testament pictures of a Redeemer that will come. And we just thank you for Christ, our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.